This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. How do I live in this world today? And so much of what Paul does, I think, at the beginning of this letter is to examine the condition of our own hearts. He he talked about uh, uh, the Gentile um, wanton, shameless lifestyle uh, last week. And now he's going to be speaking at uh, this sense of uh, morality that people can have to bring a spirit of judgmentalism. So he's kind of trying to deal with both of these these issues that come with, from within the human heart. Whether you're, whether you're Jew or Gentile, you, or whether you're religious or not religious, these kinds of sins can uh, be exposed and revealed in our hearts. And so how do we live out the gospel in a way that's meaningful? Because the truth of the matter is we have the greatest message that's ever been told. That we have the hope of the gospel. That, that in Christ, not only is our salvation secure in heaven, but it makes a difference in how we live today. And uh, the, the blessing is that we have that news. You, you have that good news. And if it means something to us, if it's deep down into who we are and we see the effects that it has in our lives, and that's going to change the way we live. It's going to change how we speak to the culture, how we, and when I say the culture, I don't mean just this nebulous blob of culture, although I do mean that. I mean the person that you work with that doesn't have a biblical worldview, uh, the person that's in your family that you're called to love and to be patient with who brings out the struggle in your life, uh, your neighbor who you may not agree with on everything, who may have a different kind of sign in his or her yard, but we're called to, to love our neighbor. And so then how does the gospel make a difference in the way we show people Jesus? Uh, not necessarily to convince them, but to demonstrate that, hey, I, God's changing my life all the time, and I want to be in relationship with you to show you that good news. That's what it means for us to listen in to this letter. That's why we're studying Scripture, and we're seeking to apply it. So, as always, I'm asking you to listen for what is God saying to you, and what is something that you can do to apply this in your life this week. It's great to come and listen. I'm glad you're here. But if we're not being changed by what the Word says in us, then are we really listening at all? So think about what God are you saying to me? How can I be different in light of encountering your word and your son, Jesus? So we're going to turn now to Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge, those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance? And patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. The word of God for the people of God. Maybe seated. Father, we thank you for your word and pray that you would speak to us that we might be able to hear what you're saying, uh, that you would uh, come through my mouth and that the things that are of you that are true in accordance with your word would be heard and applied in the lives of my brothers and sisters, my friends who are listening. And whatever it is that's of me that doesn't ring true to the gospel that you would, you would allow them to ignore and that you would be glorified Lord, in this time, as we just sit around your word and think about it and consider it and seek to apply it, may you be glorified in us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the in 1960s, uh, a president was assassinated, John F. Kennedy, and there was a commission that was created to determine what actually happened called the Warren Commission. And so a lot of investigation uh, went into understanding what took place. But soon after that commission came out, uh, a book uh, was written called Rush to Judgment. And it was uh, an assessment of the Warren Commission. And I'm not going to get into who said what or whatever, but it was just this idea, according to the author of the book, that the people who did the Warren Commission left out a lot of important information and even inconsistent information. It was a, a long book, and it said, essentially, they, took, they, they rushed to judgment. Well, the title of that book actually came from another trial from the early 1800s, uh, a trial of James Hatfield, who attempted to assassinate the King of England. His attorney also said that there was a rush to judgment about Hatfield's guilt or innocence. People had jumped to conclusions without knowing the facts. Fingers were pointed before careful consideration of all the information was made. So these titles reveal the natural human tendency that we have to move toward assertions before taking into account all of the facts. And we experience this in our lives. We hear a little bit of information about something that someone has done, and we can easily go from, I learned something, a little bit of information, to that person is a complete idiot. Oh, she's just a thing. He's a liberal. She's a gossip. We just kind of automatically go, boom, here are these statements based on some information that I've gotten second, third, or fourth. And I don't know if maybe you guys are, don't resonate with that feeling or not. I don't know if you've ever done that before, but that's something that I've done. Not about anybody here listening, though, let me tell you. We have this tendency to just kind of not give people the benefit of the doubt and to say, well, let me just understand what you're saying because I, here's what I know about that person. And what you're saying sounds inconsistent, so let me gather some more facts before I can make a valuable determination. We, we tend not to do that. And it's important to note that in these verses, 
The word judge or judgment is used nine different times. Nine times in this section, Paul is using this word for judgment because he's wanting the Roman church, and he's wanting us, I think, to consider what judgment is and how we use it and how we make wise judgments. We're called to make wise judgments, especially when we're living in a challenging time. Right? I, mean, I don't know if you know this, but there are disagreements out there about what is true, about who is correct, about what we should be doing with the information that we have. And so it is imperative for believers in Jesus to act with wise judgment so that we can do the right thing. And here's the deal. Facts are our friends. Even if the facts don't portray us in the most wonderful, glorious light, it's better that we live in the truth and respond to the truth. There's this interesting podcast that I listen to called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. And it's about a church in Seattle that really came up out of nowhere with this dynamic, passionate, uh, aggressive leader. And uh, eventually, over time, there were as many as 10 to 12,000 people gathering in multi-site campuses. And the podcast reveals, though, that this, this pastor had a very domineering and authoritative style but that was part of the draw. And it caused a lot of hurt and a lot of harm. There were a lot of people whose lives were changed by the gospel through this ministry. But there were a lot of people who were really hurt, turned off and away from the church because of the abusive nature of those relationships. And so some have asked the question, well, why even produce a podcast about this if it shines a negative light on the church? Well, we want to live in the truth. We want to understand and acknowledge the brokenness of who we are as people. And so it's important that the truth is known. But then we also have to be able to make wise judgments about what the truth actually is so that we can live in freedom. And if we need to confess, if we need to repent, if we need to say, yeah, it's like that. And it shouldn't be. And we acknowledge before Jesus that that's not us as the church living in the most beneficial and faithful way. And we acknowledge that and we confess it and we apologize for it. That's a witness to the world about forgiveness, about confession, about grace. And that's using wise judgment. And that's what we want to do as believers. So we want to make sure that as we're thinking about information that we're getting, that we're taking into account what's the best response that I have about this information. When the world is swirling in chaos around us, we want to use wise judgment. Now, so generally speaking, the word judgment means to make a decision on a matter. Like, how do you decide what to do in this situation or in that situation? But the word in this passage is more specific than that. Paul is talking about the ultimate judgment that God is going to make on all people. Paul is calling on the Romans to understand the true nature of judgment. So remember last week in Romans chapter 1, he has called out the, uh, the shameless immorality of the culture. He has uh, addressed this licentious way of living that is mainly Gentile, but certainly some Jews could have partaken in that as well. But in this chapter, he's turning, he's pivoting and making a different focus. He's calling out now those who are self-consciously moralists. Right? Maybe over this side, he's saying, these are the irreligious people who make up their own rules and say, cast off God, we're going to do whatever we want to do, generally speaking. But over here, 
are the people who would say, well, we're the ones who know what is right and wrong, and we're going to be the judge. Maybe these people are irreligious, and these people are religious. But Paul knows that both of those people, both of those groups of people are very far from God, because God is the judge. Because both of them are exhibiting shameless deeds before him. So Paul, uh, he is bringing up in this section a, a new perspective on what it means to live a life far from God. In the first verse, notice he says this, O man, or O one who judges, therefore you have no excuse, O one, every one of you who judges. This is Jew or Gentile, religious or irreligious, anyone who is presumed to pass a moral judgment on another person. This includes everybody, probably. Anyone who has a tendency to consider themselves righteous in front of someone else. So it's easy for us to say, oh, well, look at the culture. It's so bad. Look at all the bad things that they're doing. Look at how wicked it's become. Instead, it's hard to look within and to say, what's wrong with me? What's going on in, in my heart? And I think that there's a place for us to be able to say to the culture, this is not faithful to God. And we as followers of Jesus want to live in to faithfulness. But I think it's also imperative that we as followers of Jesus look within and to say what's wrong here so that God can do his work in both places. So in this uh, sermon, he's gonna, I'm gonna go through three different aspects of God's judgment because the best way for us to understand and know what is the right kind of judgment is to look at the ultimate judgment that God is going to bring. So he says this, we talk about God's judgment in three ways. It's inescapable, it's righteous, and it's impartial. It's inescapable, it's righteous, and it's impartial. Okay, the first one, verses one through four. I'm gonna read these again because it's been a minute. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, yet do them yourself, that you'll escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? There's this weird reality that I think we all at some point or other live in where we just kind of think that we're right all the time. Right, because, I mean, think about it. If you thought you were wrong, you would change your viewpoint, right? So no one really says, oh, I'm right about everything, because we wouldn't want to say that. But honestly, if you thought you were wrong, you would have a different viewpoint, correct? Right, so when someone presents an idea to us, and we're not either convinced of their ability to make a good argument, or we don't think that it's the case, even if someone gives us a little bit of information, we're easy to dismiss, oh, that's just not true. That's just not true. So here's an example. Uh, I'll give you two examples, one that makes me look good and one that makes me look bad, just to be even. Okay, so when I, when I was in high school, I was learning how to be a pilot. I was learning how to fly. And you have to understand you know, all kinds of uh, regulations and then all, you know, physics and how planes go up and down and whatnot. And I learned about this thing called wingtip vortices or, or wake turbulence. So when a plane takes off especially, there are these little tornadoes essentially that come off the wings that create a disturbance of air. And if another plane takes off too soon, before that, that air 
dies down and has those little tornadoes not going, it could easily flip over and crash. And so I was talking with my friend's dad about this for some reason, and he was a, a sports writer for the local newspaper. So he's a real sharp guy, and he looks at me when I'm telling him about wingtip vortices, and he's just like, that's not true. And I was like, <laughs> yes, let me show you the book. But he couldn't receive from me, a high school guy who had just learned how to fly or was learning, that this was actually a thing that could take place. And just so you know, I checked this morning because 30 years ago I learned this. It's, it's actually a thing. This can happen. But for him, it was just like, why would I believe you? You're in high school. What do you know about this kind of thing? He wasn't willing to hear the truth. Well, here's an example that makes me look bad. So when I was in, in college, I had an assignment in my marketing class. And the assignment was, go to the computer lab. And I was like, what's electronic mail? Okay, and when I went to school, back before we had electricity, um, you know, had, no one had a computer. <laughs> now everyone has like multiple. But you had to go to the lab and there were 30 computers in the College of Business. There were probably five or 6,000 students in the College of Business. So you had to wait in line to get into a computer in the lab, sign up. And I went and checked my electronic mail. So I had to walk, you know, across the street from where I live over to the lab. And I'm like, this is dumb, checking an electronic mail. What, is, what even is electronic mail? I go over there. The assignment was check your electronic mail and then respond and send an electronic mail. And I'm just thinking, I'll never use this. I'm dumb, right? It was hard for me to get my head around the fact that an email would be something I would ever need or want to do. But I got 100% on the assignment because I sent it and I, and I received it. Because I just was, I just, it was something that was, didn't exist in my brain. I couldn't fathom that that was a thing that it would even be necessary. Well, now, meanwhile, I'm just like deleting emails all the time. I mean, how many of you have uh, three or 4,000 emails in your email box that you haven't responded to, right? Some of us, some of you do. You don't raise your hands. I couldn't conceive of it. And it was, I, I honestly, I resented my professor for asking me to do that assignment. And I'm so thankful for him, <laughs> sort of, because now I get too many emails, right? So there are questions about things that we don't know the answer to, but we just tend to make a judgment on whether or not, sometimes we'll even look at the person and say, I can't believe that you would say that. You must be really foolish. When in fact, they're bringing us some information that is not only true, but helpful for us. This just reveals the tendency that we have to make judgments. And these are not moral things. They're just life things. But we do also make moral judgments about others without getting all the information. We rush to judgment. In fact, we're really critical of other people, but we're very patient and gracious <laughs> with ourselves. We're harsh. We're as, as harsh with others as we are lenient toward ourselves. Because if we make a mistake, we'll say, well, here are all the reasons why I blew up in that moment. Because you see, I was under pressure. I was feeling stressed. I was tired. I hadn't had anything to eat or my coffee. And so that's why I yelled at someone. But when someone yells at us, we're like, that person is evil. And that's why they're yelling at me. We just do that. Maybe, maybe y'all don't do that. I do that. When someone does something, we think it's really serious, and this person is demented or deranged, and when we do it, we say, well, I just had an off day. I hadn't had my coffee yet. We're blaming it on the coffee, right? And sometimes we can even gain satisfaction from condemning others for the very failures that we exhibit 
ourselves. Freud called this moral gymnastic uh, projection. But here, the Apostle Paul is addressing it in the first century. Thomas Hobbes, a 17th century political philosopher, wrote of people who are forced to keep themselves in their own favor by observing the imperfections of other men. This enables us simultaneously to retain our own sins and our own self-respect. It's a convenient arrangement, both slick and sick. Uh, Also, Paul argues that we expose ourselves when we do this to the judgment of God, and we leave ourselves without excuse or escape. Because you see, if we're good at evaluating the morality of someone else, then we can't plead ignorance on the moral issues that we have ourselves. When we judge others, we condemn ourselves, for he says in verse one, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. And you, when I'm pointing at you, right, I've got three fingers pointing back at me, right, one, two, three, one's at you, this one's over here at Will, and this, these three are back this way. So when I'm saying you, I'm meaning me too, right? Sorry, Will, you're a good man. Guilty, yeah, thank you for confessing that. In Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. So now, Paul is not saying, hey, don't use wise judgment in life. He's not saying don't evaluate the behavior of other people. He's not just saying, hey, anything goes. Uh, He's saying, be willing to acknowledge that you have a tendency to hold others to a higher standard than yourself. And that's a good thing. In this passage, in this moment, this is what he's saying. And it's good for us to recognize, well, how have I done that? In what ways have I judged other people? In what ways have I rushed to judgment? Have I not given people the benefit of the doubt? I've heard a little bit of information and I've made a categorical assumption about who they are or what kind of person. And Paul is just calling us. He's saying, first of all, you're bringing judgment upon yourself when you do that. And so the response to that is is to say, well, Lord, let me examine my own heart. Let me acknowledge that in myself and how, how I do that. Um, and sometimes he says that in, in, when we're trying to escape what's inescapable, because God is, he knows what's on our hearts. He knows everything that we're thinking about and everything that we're dealing with. You know, his judgment. Sometimes what we'll do is we'll def- deflect to uh, a theological argument. Okay, well, all right. Or we'll even just kind of hide in God, right? Verse four, he gets to this point. He says, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness? and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. We hide essentially in God's kindness saying, oh, well, you know, God forgives me when I do that. Yes, God forgives us when we do that. But what does it say? God's kindness leads us to repentance. And what is repentance? It's a willingness to acknowledge, yes, I have done that a lot. And it's wrong. And when we admit that, when we confess that, then guess what happens, right? We know the gospel restores us and renews us. And then we're able to see the person that we've judged in a different light because we realize, well, they're a human too. And they're broken too. And they're going through their things. And you know what? Those times when I get really frustrated and I have an outburst and I just claim the coffee or I'm tired, they're probably doing the same thing too. And so when someone responds with anger or in a way that I don't like, instead of making a judgment on them, you know what I can do is I can say, there's probably something going on And if I learn about what's going on, if I get near to that person and I say, help me understand what you're going through, well, then instead of tension and bitterness, there can be understanding. There can be grace. There can be fellowship. There can be encouragement. 
There can be maturity. What a blessing that is. But it takes you and I, you and I being willing to acknowledge, yeah, I do make those judgments. And thank you, Lord, for reminding me of that and forgiving me for that. And that's what it means to live in community, to live in fellowship, to live as a country with differing points of view. Is to say, I know I disagree with you on this, but you come to these conclusions based on your story and your value system, and I may disagree with you, but I want to understand more. But I think it's important to be able to say, if I can't present my opponent's argument in a way that they would say, yeah, that's exactly what I think, then I'm probably not being fair to their argument. Right? Creating what's called a straw man. Oh, these people all the time do this. Well, like... Would you want someone characterizing or making your argument in that way without knowing the full picture? Now, I, I was listening to a, a pastor talk, and he was going to write about uh, abortion um, for, in, a, in a chapter of a book. And so he met with some abortion doctors because he said, you know, I, I don't like it when people say, well, he's a pastor, so he must think this and mischaracterize what my viewpoints are. So I figured I had to go and learn from a person who does this procedure so that I could really understand what their motivations were. Now, that's a challenging thing to do, is to go to a person with whom you disagree and to say, help me understand where you're coming from so that I can really get a sense of where we really differ and where the, it's, it's just maybe personality or culture or something else. But when we do that extra work, then not only are we able to make a better argument, but we're able also then to have the opportunity to speak to the person with whom we disagree in a meaningful way about the content of the argument and not just the peripheral stuff. You get down to the real issue. And I think that's helpful. That's good. Because, hey, facts are our friends. And if Jesus rose from the dead, and that's true, then we can stand with confidence and go up against anyone in a loving way and not get defensive, but to say, I want to give you a presentation of my viewpoints. But I'd love to hear from you what your viewpoint is. Now, the challenge for us, I think, also is that those conversations really happen best face-to-face. -face. Uh, social media is not a great place for that kind of engagement, as we've seen. It just creates more uh, disagreement. But anyway, that's what we're getting at here. So uh, we don't want to hide in, um, in God's kindness. We want to allow God's kindness to lead us toward repentance and to say, well, how am I doing this? So here's a... Here's a um, a question for you, just kind of application point, take a little pause, application pause. Is there an area where you've jumped to conclusions with someone in your family, with someone in your community, with someone in the church? Have you rushed a judgment? You have an opportunity to say to that person, hey, help me understand what you meant when you said this. Or, you know, I, I've realized that they're probably going through something and I don't really know what it is. And so I'm just going to forgive or I'm going to move on or I'm going to let it go. I'm not going to harbor that grudge or that bitterness. And if you can't do that, then it's good to just go to the person, right? This is Matthew 18. This is the biblical way of resolving conflict, right? Is if your brother sins against you, go find somebody else to talk to about it and rip them, rip them a new one. No, no. It's if your brother sins against you, you go to your brother or sister and you tell them their sin and then you can have an opportunity to be reconciled. That's the best way to do it. You know, it's not get on Twitter and say, man, that guy's a me, me, No, go to the person. And it, but that's hard, isn't it? isn't it? Isn't it hard to go to the person? I, I know that it is. I, I recognize that. But man, as followers of Jesus, right, facts are our friends. 
we want to go and love people enough to tell them, this is what, what hurt me, or this is what I don't understand, and I want a restored relationship with you, so can we have a conversation about it? Those are great conversations, because then you get understanding. You may not agree on the issue, but you have an opportunity to be reconciled, and that's beautiful. That's an awesome thing. And, and as followers of Jesus, we're called into that, and we're given that by God. God gives us these instructions to bless us. So, okay, so God's judgment is inescapable. And that sounds kind of a scary point. Ooh, God's judgment is inescapable. But when you think about it, there's a lot of life that comes out of this. Is that how is God forming us and shaping us to be his people in the world? Second point, God's judgment is righteousness, is righteous. Uh, verses 5 through 11. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself. Oh, more good news. On the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he'll render to each one according to his works. And then it continues on. It's actually a sign, what Paul is saying, of an unrepentant heart when we think we can go on sinning because God has already shown his kindness to us. And what Paul says is that we're storing up wrath. Now that sounds pretty scary, and it is, right? Wrath, remember last, from last week, is the punishment that people deserve for sin. And so God is storing up wrath. And remember, think about this last week, God's wrath was revealed on the unrighteous. But here the thing, God is, Paul is saying that God's wrath is revealed on the judgmental. On the people who say, well, yeah, I know God, and you're wrong, and you're being bad. That wrath can be poured out upon those who are members of God's covenant community. Unless they've trusted in Jesus Christ. Because when we know Christ, then we say we can acknowledge the brokenness that we've we've. Um, encountered or exhibited or behaved in and we can say lord help me to be restored to you uh, paul is not uh, saying though here if you do good things you're going to get good things right because we know that paul has already said in uh, chapter 1 16 and 7, 17 that the just the righteous will live by faith we know that the gospel is not what we do but it's what god has done and because it's what god has done then we live out faithfully Right? It's, not, um, it's not this God does it because we, because we do good things. But there is going to be a day of judgment. Paul is clear about that. Um, the day of judgment is a public occasion. Uh, its purpose is not to determine God's judgment, then rather to announce and to vindicate. Right? So God is going to judge all of our works all of the things that we've done. If we're in Christ, we're set free from any punishment, any wrath associated with those things. But nevertheless, what we do matters. We're going to be held accountable for all of the things that we do. Thankfully, Jesus' blood will cover our sins. But we are called then to live a life of obedience. And Paul brings that out in these, in these verses. And this is a theme that happens throughout Scripture. And look at what he says there in in verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. It's either this or this. And because of us who have been found in Christ, know the Lord, then we ought to be engaging in loving and kind uh, activities and actions all the time. Because guess what? God has engaged in a loving and kind activity toward us, 
even while we were yet sinners, it says in the uh, prayer of confession or the assurance of pardon, even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Like we're sinning actively and God dies for us. That's a beautiful thing and it should change us. It should transform our relationships and the way we love one another. When someone sins against us, we can say, you know what, I was sinning against God and he loved me. So when this person sins against me, I can do what Christ has done for me. I can love them. Wow, that's countercultural. That's radical. That is not the way the world operates. And when you and I know Jesus so well that he has loved us and claimed us, when we start acting in that manner, that changes the world. It changes families. It changes uh, workplaces and, and schools and communities. When people start saying, you know what? Yeah, it's a mess of a world, but I'm moving toward the world in love because of what Jesus has done for me. That's a powerful statement. Thirdly, God's judgment is impartial. Verses uh, 12 through 16, which I didn't even read at the beginning of the service, so we're gonna go through and read these. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is really dense material, friends. But he's developing his thought out of the Mosaic law, which is mentioned here and has a prominent place in the rest of the, of the letter. Jews and Gentiles appear to be fundamentally different from one, one another, right? Like these are, the, these are the godless and these are the godly. And the Jews hear the law, it says in verse 13. They have the law, which is the Ten Commandments. They hear it in the synagogue every day where the Gentiles do not have the law. They don't have it. It was not revealed to them, did they, and they didn't have it. But Paul insists that the difference in, is exaggerated. He said there's no fundamental distinction between them and the moral knowledge they have, right? Because he said in Romans 1 that the law is written on our hearts. So whether you're hearing the Bible read in church on Sunday, or you think that the, the scriptures don't have any bearing on your life, the law is written on your heart. And that's why we're all accountable to it, right? So if anyone ever says, well, you shouldn't be doing that. You ought not to do that. C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity that they're appealing to a higher standard. You shouldn't trip people. You shouldn't quarrel like that. Well, we're appealing to a higher standard of perfect behavior. So whether or not you, you have the Bible that's read to you or you've never even read it, we appeal to this standard. And what Paul says is that we're all accountable to that standard. We're all accountable to God. And the good news is, is that God is impartial. He is always just. He is always right. Why? Because he's judging us based on the work of Jesus Christ. I heard a story uh, about in 2009 that there was a, uh, a judge in Pennsylvania named Mark Ciavarella, and he had sentenced about 3,000 children to months of detention after they had committed minor infractions. But later... He was sentenced to 28 years in prison for accepting $2.2 million in finder's fees from the for-profit facility 
that ran the jail where those children served time. He had been sending these so-called delinquents to jail for a finder's fee. When the truth came out, 2,500 of those convictions were reversed and expunged. Judge Mark was not an honorable judge. He was not partial. He was partial. He was doing something for his own gain. Could you imagine standing before a court, in a court before a judge who you didn't know whether or not they were going to fairly administer the law? That would be a frightening thing. And yet the good news is, brothers and sisters, we do stand before a judge who will exercise judgment in the perfect way that the law requires, completely, 100%, perfectly. The bad news is, though, that each, and each of us, every person here, is guilty of breaking that law. But the good news is, is that someone has come in, someone, Jesus Christ, the perfect representation of the law, to stand in and say, the punishment that Matt deserves, I will take upon myself. The punishment that you deserve, Jesus takes upon himself. The punishment is delivered. The wrath of God is paid out and poured out onto Jesus on the cross. But you and I go free. And so then what does that mean for us? That means we live in freedom. We live in joy. We live in hope. We live in passion. We live with compassion. We're able to go and engage with people with whom we disagree and to say, help me understand your argument fully. Or let me forgive you for what you did even though you're not asking for it. We can go into the hard places of our city and care. We can minister to people who are difficult to minister to. Not for them, but for God. Because we've been set free. We're not the ones that have to live it out perfectly. Jesus has already done that. And that's the good news. We stand before the most perfect and wonderful judge who has ever existed. God himself. And so as we make judgments about how we live our lives and how we love the community around us, we do it in light of Christ. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.